This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. My guest today on Digging in the Dirt is Michael E. Mann, arguably the foremost living paleoclimatologist and geophysicist. He is the director of the Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. Mann has contributed to the scientific understanding of historic climate change based on the temperature record of the past thousand years. His latest book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Welcome, Michael. Uh, thanks, Kevin. It's great to be with you. You're a busy guy these days. I've watched you on many, many interviews all over the major media, and I'm honored that you have taken time to come back on Digging in the Dirt and talk some oh, more. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I really appreciate it. We're just we're little guys in the big pond, but you know we're we're doing our <laughs> we're doing our part. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, no, I, um, I as a uh, as somebody who's always been interested in aquatic biology, I'm uh, happy to spend some time in the pond here with you. <laughs> Thank you. So, why did you choose to call this book "Our Fragile Moment"? Uh, well, because we are at a fragile moment. Uh, we are we find ourselves in a fragile moment, and what I mean by that is that we are sort of at the, the precipice. We really have two possible paths we can follow at this point. If we continue with business as usual, uh, burning of fossil fuels, uh, we continue to add carbon pollution to the atmosphere and warm the planet, uh, we can certainly create conditions that uh, will be adverse uh, for us and other living things uh, and, and for human civilization. On the other hand, if we take the necessary actions, if we decarbonize uh, our economy over the next 10 years or so, if we reduce carbon emissions by 50% this decade and get them down to zero by the middle of the century, we can avert truly catastrophic planetary warming. And so the choice is ours. Um, this is the moment really where we now have to decide. Yeah, though the book is not for the neophyte. I don't think it's for somebody just starting out to try to figure out what their where their place is and all this. But it's a really important, I think, addition to the conversation about climate change. You know, it, you go into depth about the past here on the planet. So, what does our planet's yeah. past tell us about the future? Yeah, and so I really did want to get into the science, um, in part because I have increasingly seen misrepresentations of the science and not entirely by sort of climate change deniers. That's where we are used to seeing sort of the science distorted and misrepresented uh, by fossil fuel interests and by those uh, advocating for them who deny that climate change is real. They dismiss it as a hoax. But increasingly, I was actually seeing uh, the science or the, misrepresent uh, the misrepresentation of the science weaponized to promote a, a sort of a narrative of doom, uh, of doomism, that it's too late to do anything about the problem. And ironically, that can lead us down the same path of disengagement uh, as outright denial. And there are bad actors who are fanning the flames of climate doomism because they realize it takes those who would otherwise be on the front lines advocating for change and, and potentially puts them on the sidelines, which is where polluters want them. And so I really felt that I had to sort of reclaim the science uh, in its rightful role in these conversations. Um, one of the things, for example, that uh, we see 
is sort of uh, past uh, mass extinction events used um, as an argument that we've already triggered sort of civilization ending warming, that uh, we've triggered runaway global warming. There's nothing we can do about it anymore. Uh, we will all be extinct within the next 10 years. There are some you know, pretty widely cited um, individuals with large platforms, with substantial platforms, who have been arguing that now. Um, and so I really felt like I had to tell the story of what the paleoclimate record really tells us, what earth history really tells us. And it doesn't tell us that we are doomed. It doesn't tell us that we've trigger, triggered runaway warming. Um, it tells us that you know the cause of the warming is the carbon pollution that we have put into the atmosphere and when we stop adding carbon pollution to the atmosphere, the surface of the planet stops warming quite rapidly. So there is an immediate and direct consequence of our efforts um, to address the climate crisis. And, and the paleoclimate record teaches us that. In fact, it has so many lessons for us that you know, when I first approached this project, I, I wanted to sort of, like I said, reclaim the rightful role of a certain past mass extinction events like the end Permian extinction 250 million years ago or the Paleocene, Eocene thermal maximum. I know it just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> uh, we caught the, the PETM, which was a rapid warming event 56 million years ago. Um, I wanted, you know, first of all, to tell the story of what those events really do tell us. But I realized in, in the process that we've got more than 4 billion years of Earth history to learn from. So, so let's see what other lessons we can learn. And that's what I do. I sort of go through more than 4 billion years of Earth history in a couple hundred pages. Um, so it's a pretty uh, fast uh, journey uh, through time. But but I do try to unpack that record and and, and really tell the story of what lessons it has to offer us today. And the, from what I was reading, it, it, there's many episodes of climate change from cold to hot and, I mean, pretty severely big changes. But the current climate change has a very unique cause, right? That's right. I mean, we, we see on the one hand that the Earth system has a certain amount of resilience, that uh, even as the sun got brighter over time, uh, the greenhouse effect slowly got lower over time in just such a way that Earth's temperature tended to remain within livable bounds. And I get into the, the Gaia hypothesis, this hypothesis put forward by scientists uh, James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis in the early 1970s, um, where, which posits that the Earth system, the chemistry, the physics, and the biology of the Earth system acts in such a way as to tend to keep the planet within habitable bounds. And it does appear to be true. So there is this resilience. But as you alluded to, there's also at the same time, seemingly contradictory, there's fragility too. And that fragility is evident in an event that happened two and a half billion years ago, uh, the great oxygenation event or oxidation event, where photosynthetic bacteria suddenly you know, emerged, um, uh, photosynthetic bacteria that produce oxygen emerged at that time, and they filled up the atmosphere with oxygen, which oxidized all the methane, that very potent greenhouse gas that had kept the earth so warm in its uh, earlier times. And that 
created a rapid cooling, uh, ice formed. Once you form ice, you reflect more sunlight, so you get even more cooling. It is a runaway scenario in the opposite direction, and Earth became encased in ice. Snowball Earth. It really happened. The geological evidence tells us it happened. So you can get these runaway events, and in that case, it was caused by life itself, these photosynthetic bacteria. Hmm. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Which of those forces do we want to be today? Do we want to be the stabilizing force because there's evidence that life can be stabilizing? Or do we want to be that destabilizing force because there, there's evidence for that too? What's different between us and the photosynthetic bacteria or the dinosaurs when um, they went extinct because of the massive asteroid collision? There's nothing that they could have done about their predicament. Um, they weren't sentient. They didn't understand what was happening. Uh, and, and couldn't do anything about it. We don't have that excuse. Right. And it, what makes it unique is that this particular climate change is instigated by mankind. It is. And it's more rapid than, you know, we, we the PETM, which I mentioned, we call that a rapid warming event. And we now understand it was due to a fairly rapid input of carbon dioxide due to um, intense volcanism at that time that tapped into an unusually rich a reservoir of carbon in the solid earth. And, and so it was a rapid input of carbon dioxide or rapid warming. But we mean by rapid there is over 10,000 years or 20,000 years. That's, that's rapid from a geological standpoint. We're warming the planet 100 times faster than that today. Hmm. And you believe that if the current climate policy holds, then the best scientific predictions show things could be painful. What is that? How much pain are we talking about? Yeah. So, you know, we often talk about business as usual and business as usual now isn't as bad as it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago, because we've actually made some progress. You know, here in the United States, we passed the Inflation Reduction Act with its climate provisions. Um, there was a report uh, uh, just uh, about a month ago, the Guardian uh, reported on this. Um, the latest estimates are now that we are seeing a plateau and maybe even a decrease in carbon emissions in the electricity sector, in the power generation sector. So we're actually seeing some progress due to you know, policies that are now being put in place to, to deal with the climate crisis. That is true, but we're not seeing enough action yet. And so we have to be able to, you know, and there's often, there's been a, a real loss of nuance in these conversations. They get very polarized. Uh, they get very dogmatic. Um, and sometimes it's hard for people to realize that it isn't binary. Um, uh, it's not like we're making no progress, but we're also not yet making enough progress. We have to be able to hold those seemingly contradictory notions in our mind at the same time. And so we we clearly have to improve on what's being done. But the good news is that Business as usual now won't lead to seven, eight, nine degrees Fahrenheit warming of the planet by the end of the century, because that's where we were headed 10 years ago. Business as usual now uh, may mean five degrees Fahrenheit, uh, you know, as, as much as three degrees Celsius, five uh, to six degrees Fahrenheit warming of the planet. That's still way too much. Too much we yeah. need to get it below one and a half. Uh, a little bit of more good news, though. If all of the commitments that were made at the international climate, the UN climate conference COP26 two years ago in Glasgow, if every nation of the world makes good on the obligations on the commitments they made there, and those 
those uh, commitments are made on time, that probably keeps warming at about two degrees Celsius, uh, below four degrees Fahrenheit. And so we can see how there is progress and it's taking us towards the goal that we need to reach, but we're not yet there. We need to keep warming below one and a half Celsius, three degrees Fahrenheit to avert some of the, the worst possible consequences of climate change. And, and we're making progress, but we're not that, uh, we're not, there yet. And that's what is going to make this next climate conference next month, COP28 uh, in, in Dubai, um, so important. Yeah, I, I always tell people it's about speed and scale. We're making progress, but we really need to up the speed and the scale of what we're doing. That, that's exactly right. Um, we're, we're headed in the right direction, but not fast enough yet. Right. And so I get this question all the time. I'm sure you do too. How bad will it get if we don't correct course a little bit i mean i believe the planet and mother nature fixes things pretty quickly if we if we change but i read in your book that you said that this is more a, a, a political problem than anything else yeah and what i mean by that we've got you know it isn't the climate physics that tells us we can't do this that we can't keep warming below you know three degrees fahrenheit it isn't even the technology we have the technology to decarbonize our economy um, to, to get those reductions that we need 50% reduction by 2030 um, uh, you know all the way down to zero by 2050 uh, we're, that report I mentioned shows that we're basically there um, in the power generation sector but power generation electricity is only about 20% of total carbon emissions so there's transportation there's buildings there's industry so we've got a lot of work to 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 do but yeah we can keep warming below that very uh, dangerous level of, of one and a half Celsius, three degrees Fahrenheit, um, if we can overcome the political obstacles. That's the only obstacle right now is the politics. And you know, part of that, of course, is uh, us turning out and, and voting in mass numbers um, and voting for climate forward politicians and voting out um, those politicians who have acted as a rubber stamp for the fossil fuel industry. So we have an important role ourselves as individuals. And of course, there are things we can do as individuals to decrease our carbon footprint and our environmental impact, and we should all do those things. But one of the most important things we can do is put pressure on our elected leaders who, they're the ones who are in a position to you know, pass policy, the policies that will you know, incentivize clean energy, disincentivize renewable uh, uh, fossil fuel energy, and, and move us in the direction we collectively need to go. It's really important going into this next election. Uh, we have to be thinking about it. People have to turn out and vote and, and vote on this issue. Yeah, because I always say that this issue is, makes all the other ones moot. I mean, if we head to such a negative space, you're going to be worried more about how you live your life and how you're going to have grow food and how you're going to you know, have energy to, to survive. And, and, yeah. and I don't want to be over dramatic, but these are decisions that will be, the, the environment will sort of, will trump all other things. Yeah. As I like to say, you know, there is no economy on a dead planet. Um, and so, you know, people who say, oh, it's going to destroy the economy. No, you know, it's going to destroy the economy. The environment. Act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So what about the, you talk about you know voting. I agree with you with the politicians, but they're controlled also by the lobbyists. Who are what about corporate buy-in? You know, it doesn't yeah. seem that there is a whole lot of that. For instance, just the other day, 
Um, we had the head of ExxonMobil, the chief, chief executive, Darren Woods, come out and say, among other things, that the role of fossil fuels is going to be a big role for the foreseeable future and that it may diminish with time, he said, but the rate of that, which is, I think, not very clear at this stage, uh, but oil will be around for a long, long time. That's from ExxonMobil. And they made a big purchase of a fracking company. The other, they, they feel that it was a good investment, yeah. $60 billion. So what do you say about things like that? Well, they may think it's a good investment, but we have to make sure that that's a stranded asset. Um, the fossil fuel companies are going to have stranded assets in the tens of to hundreds of billions of dollars because they are investing in fossil fuel uh you know, uh, uh, fossil fuel reserves that we are going to make sure they are never able to tap because the proof there are, there's enough oil, gas, uh, oil, gas, and coal in proven reserves to put five times as much carbon into the atmosphere as is necessary to blow past that three degree Fahrenheit target. Um, so they can't even be allowed to, to, um, to extract and, and sell and, and ultimately burn even a fraction of their proven reserves. We need to make sure that those are stranded assets, that investors understand that the fossil fuel industry now is a, a bad investment because they are going to have to keep most of their assets in the ground, stranded assets. That's a liability. And I do think that there is increased recognition in the investment community, in the major investment firms, uh, in um, super annuity uh, funds, um, uh, we're increasingly seeing the banking and finance industry recognize that they do play a role here. And, you know, they are the, the heads of those um, companies are often parents who, who have children and maybe grandchildren. And, and I do think that they're starting to understand that they have a fiduciary responsibility, not just to increase the return of their clients' investments, but to preserve a livable planet for their clients and their right. clients' children and grandchildren. Yeah, I talk to people and we talk about true cost. You know, right. it's not true cost, you know, if, if you're right. destroying the planet, you know, we how do we get past this? period of time where the commons yeah yeah, yeah like we're, we're we're totally okay with ex exploitation and extraction uh on the planet but we're not thinking about well i mean let's face it the these these resources are are limited it's a it's a small planet it doesn't it's not unlimited yeah that's absolutely right um you know uh, we are on this collision course um with environmental sustainability. We can't continue to extract resources on a finite planet and expect it all to work out. Uh, we are coming up against various, uh, as we call them, planetary boundaries. Um, and climate is one of those planetary boundaries. There are constraints on what environmental impact we can have and, 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 and still maintain a, a viable human civilization. And in, in my book, I do tell some of the cautionary tales from our past, the rise and fall of uh, ancient Mesopotamia 6,000 years ago. It arose 6,000 years ago. It fell 2,000 years later because of climate change and the instability that that uh, created. In fact, um, it was a massive drying event um, and there was a division of interest between the northern and southern tribes. And there was a wall built to keep out the northerners 
called the repeller of the Ammonites. And if that is not a cautionary tale <laughs> for what we're seeing today, I don't know what is. Wow. We're talking to Michael E. Mann about his new book, Our Fragile Moment. Uh, Mike's always got some great things for us to think about and pushes the movers and shakers also to think about it and try to do something better for all of us. And that's appreciated. You know, I want to end, uh, put something in here that the filmmaker, John Feldman, who did Symbiotic Earth, it was about the aforementioned Lynn Margulis. It's a fabulous film. And he, in that film, he's talking about a system of systems and how one system breaks down, it, uh, it affects other systems. And we're yeah. seeing some of that going on around the planet. Now, in his new film, Regenerating Life, it poses a looming question. Is there more to climate change than carbon emissions? Feldman investigates the science around water, soil, and the destruction of ecosystems and suggests that if we leave nature alone, stop the massive exploitation of resources and destruction of habitats, maybe with some tweaking from us as well, nature will repair itself. Your thoughts? Well, I agree with that. But uh, obviously, you know, the addition of carbon pollution is <laughs> is one of those destabilizing factors. So there are multiple insults that we are, you know, engaged in, in multiple uh, in, insults to our planet. And, and one of them is human-caused climate change, uh, cli you know, the warming of our planet and the destabilization of our climate due to uh, the burning of fossil fuels and carbon pollution. But there's also air and water pollution, and there's, a, you know, a habitat destruction, and there is a water, you know, uh, there are all of these, you know, again, we call them planetary boundaries, all of these dimensions of sustainability, and climate change is just one of them. There are multiple dimensions of sustainability, and there is a boundary with respect to each one of them, beyond which... Um, human civilization starts to become extremely vulnerable. And uh, there was an article actually less than a year ago that looked at uh, nine of these different planetary boundaries. And we've, we've discussed some of them here. And they found that with respect to six out of nine of them, we're already in that danger zone. We're not mm -hmm. past the boundary of, you know, of survivability, but we're sort of past the boundary of what you might call thriving. Uh, we are no longer thriving um, as we once were with respect to these various dimensions of our environment. And so it's a wake-up call, um, it, and it's bigger than climate change. It really is about the collision course that we are on if we maintain this you know, resource-dependent, extractive global economy, and, and, and we believe that that just has to get bigger over time, and we have to extract more and more resources over time, you know, it, it's not that difficult a point to understand that uh, pretty soon you run into the fundamental boundaries of a finite planet with finite resources. Right. You you mentioned the Goldilocks planet, yeah. that, that we exist, to, we can thrive here because we have perfect conditions and we're it's messing right. with those perfect conditions. I mean, it's not a coincidence that life and human civilization arose on this planet because this planet happens to have all of the attributes, you know, that supports life and eventually through evolution. And I go through that in the book, how we got here and, and climate change actually played a role. Some of the accidents and events, the, the you know, the collision that killed off the dinosaurs, um, um, uh, the rapid warming events that uh, favored the environments uh, for the very first primates, of course, our, our distant ancestors. There are all of these 
accidents and events that happened in the past, climate, naturally driven climate changes that happened in the past that actually led to this fragile moment that got us here in the first place. And so there's a great irony here in that it is now climate change that imperils us, climate change driven by us and our own behavior. Uh, I was just reading something by the environmental author, uh, Derek Lynch. He was talking about how we, through all the things you just said, like the colonial redistribution of species, climate change, uh, forever chemicals, plastics that are, it's unbelievable, the plastic problem, and, you know, nitrogen and phosphorus into the, into the oceans and places like that. He says that we've now uh, altered just about all ecosystems a bit and that we're headed toward a tipping point So, in, 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 um, of collapse. So do you agree with that? I mean, I don't, is that part of the problem though? The you know, doomers latch onto that and then say, oh, we're going to, it's going to happen. You know, we're going to collapse and, and we're not going to be able to do anything about it. So I guess it's a two-part question. Are you, yeah. Do you think there are tipping points and it, it, should we be thinking about that more than how to re, sort of push it back? Yeah, I mean, there are tipping points, but but they're, they, they um, lie in different locations, different places. You know, a certain amount of warming uh, may lead to the collapse of the Greenland ice sheet, and there's massive sea level rise that comes with that. Uh, a certain amount of additional warming could lead to the collapse of a, a large part of the, the West Antarctic ice sheet and even parts of the Eastern uh, uh, Antarctic ice sheet, and, and, and that adds to a greater sea level rise. Um, there are there's a certain amount of warming they may may trigger the collapse of the so-called uh, ocean conveyor which i talk about in the book because it's played an important role in the past it be, has a tipping point like uh sort of quality to it if you add enough fresh water through the melting of ice sheets to the north atlantic and you lighten those waters that inhibits the sinking motion that drives that great ocean conveyor that delivers heat we're talking the about the amok the AMOC, exactly, yeah. that, the Atlantic uh, Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC, again, another <laughs> one of those terms that just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, right, I was practicing uh, Meridional. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's also, we sometimes call it the, the Gulf Stream, but the Gulf Stream is actually just a, a part of that current system, a wind-driven uh, current along the east coast of the U.S. that's part of the conveyor. And so it's complicated, but what isn't complicated is the fact that if we melt enough ice and we flood the North Atlantic with enough fresh water, that ocean circulation system can shut off very quickly. It's a tipping point-like response. And all of a sudden that we would see decreased uh, marine productivity in the North Atlantic, one of the great natural fisheries uh, of the world. Uh, we would see greater sea level rise along the East Coast for oceanographic reasons, physics that I won't go into. Um, and so, so it's much more like uh, we're walking out onto a minefield and there are these various mines that we will trigger uh, if we cross uh, that particular, if our path crosses that particular mine, that landmine, and and so the further we go out onto that minefield, the more danger we encounter. And I prefer that analogy to the idea that there's some specific tipping point because there isn't right. just one tipping point. There are all of these potential tipping point um, components to the climate system, and the only way to ensure that we don't trigger them is to stop the warming and to stop the carbon pollution as quickly as we can. Yeah, that's one place we can we can address fairly easily, not only with technology, but with through uh, the way we do business on the planet, basically. Yep. It does appear to me that the warming of the planet 
by melting the world's ice is going to cause a lot of problems. I mean, like the Himalayas, if they run out of ice, that takes out about nine different rivers in the world. And and also all the coastal real estate is going to be inundated. I mean, I don't think people understand the amount of you know migration that will happen because of all the, 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 the melting. It seems to be one of the more like apparent problems that people could get their their minds around uh, absolutely and and we're seeing it play out right now i mean i alluded to you know the 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 sort of the prophetic tale of the collapse of the mesopotamia and this wall that was built by the southerners to to protect their water uh, to keep out the northerners uh, very much like what we're seeing in the opposite direction now at our southern border here in the united states um previous administration the trump administration wanted to build just such a wall. Um, and in part, that's to keep out um, immigrants who are fleeing environmental degradation in, in Central America and, uh, you know, Mexico. And so there is a cautionary tale there. And especially when it comes to the most volatile region in the world from a conflict standpoint. And we, every, every listener knows what I'm talking about because we're seeing that volatility right now in the Middle East. And the Middle East is an ongoing tale of a, a conflict, of wars over access to basic resources. And of course, it's land and there's food, but water is one of those fundamental resources. And there was um, a researcher, uh, Daniel Hillel, decades ago, who wrote, wrote a book, um, uh, Rivers of Eden. And it's about how the conflict over water has for millennia driven instability. Um, uh, in the Middle East. And that is part of the underlying conflict right now between uh, Israel and Palestine, water, access to fresh water, drinkable water by the Palestinians. Um, and we've been reading about that specifically as they run out of water and other resources. Um, so it's a reminder that climate change is creating more competition for diminishing water and food and land and that can only create greater levels of conflict. And unfortunately, we're already seeing that play out. And the, yeah. the Middle East is, is is perhaps Syria. We've seen that in Syria. We're seeing it now uh, with the latest, you know, conflict in the Middle East as well. And in our own backyard, the, the, the states, the nine states out west are going to start competing for limited water supplies. And it's already happening. Well, that's right. In fact, um, years ago, I... I went out to uh, Los Angeles to meet with some uh, movie directors. This was part of uh, the, the National Academy of Sciences used to have a, a program called the Hollywood Science Exchange, where they would put scientists together with uh, movie makers who were, you know, to help them make sure that uh, that 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 what if there's a scientific sort of underlying theme to the film that it's done, you know, in a way that respects the science and helps educate people about the science. And and I spoke to some uh, a particular um, a pair of, of of movie directors, uh, movie producers, um, who were interested in creating a major motion picture um, that highlighted the climate crisis. And we're looking for what's the right vehicle. Um, the movie never got made, by the way. But what we did, um, sort of where we did end up, was water wars <laughs> in the Western United States. Um, that is a very possible scenario. Yes, it is. On this, on this, on this path that we're on. Yeah. Yes, especially for those down south of all the places where the water is coming from. 
Uh, no, that's right. Um, we've seen it before, and you know we're we're only making it worse right now through the impact of climate change on on water resources. Yeah, then this new film by John Feldman called "Regenerating Life" it gets heavily into the water situation. I yeah. think it's a very fascinating film for that reason. The um, I, let's finish off with something kind of positive. You know, I, I just came across the Earthshot Prize, the Prince Williams Project. You know, and I was wondering if you knew about it and were were you know, thought that was it was interesting because a lot of it's high tech solutions. Are, yeah. And so the reason I bring it up is because, you know, they have all these uh, different categories for awards, like protecting and restoring nature, cleaning the air, reviving the oceans, building a waste free world, fixing our climate. Most of it seemed to be tech. So I was wondering what you your thoughts are about high tech solutions versus working with and respecting nature uh, yeah. and, and the ecosystems to mitigate the planet's warming. Yeah, I mean, the latter is is um, necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, we need to stop digging the hole deeper, right. which is, you know, um, no question about that. Uh, will technology save us? Um, I don't think so. You know, is there going to be some almost magical techno fix? And there are people out there investing money in them. Um, and some of them are, frankly, a little worrying. Geoengineering where we start messing with the, you know, the earth in other ways, what could possibly go wrong? Um, you know, uh, massive carbon capture and sequestration, you know, down the road, we might want to, or even need to uh, use some of those sort of uh, technical, uh, you know, the, 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 those techno fixes, if you like, but there's no way that they are going to sort of, play into the solutions that we need to see over the next decade or so. New technology is not going to reduce carbon emissions by 50% by 2030. It may take decades for sort of the, the technological, um, you know, uh, technological um, interventions that uh, people are researching today. It'll take decades uh, for them to be deployed at any meaningful scale. So they're not going to provide the reduction in carbon emissions that are needed over the next decade in the next two decades. Um, that's going to have to come from decarbonizing our economy with the tools we already have. We don't need a miracle, Bill Gates. <laughs> it's famous for saying we, we need a miracle. Yeah. No, we don't. That miracle exists. It's called the sun. It's called the wind. It's called geothermal. It's called uh, energy conservation measures. We can do it with existing technology. And yes, down the road, new technologies may make it easier. And it may allow us ultimately to cool the planet back down because we can stop stop it from getting warmer. We can we can prevent a worsening of the impacts of climate change, but we're already seeing, right, climate-induced extreme weather events and disasters. We're already experiencing the harm from climate change. So arguably, we will want to bring carbon dioxide levels back down. We will want to cool the planet back down, ideally to pre-industrial levels. Those are, That's where, you know, this infrastructure that we've created that serves 8 billion people uh, was all built um during the pre-industrial earth and um and it depends on a climate that is similar <laughs> to the one that existed during the pre-industrial earth and so down the road sure we may need to employ some of these technologies to sort of cool the planet back down but in the meantime we've got to use the tools 
and lever arms that are available to us now to decarbonize our economy. Right. They basically stop doing what we're doing with the technologies that are producing the problem. Exactly. You know, when you're in a hole, <laughs> you know, the first rule is stop digging. And right. we're still digging, you know, not to gratuitously tie it into the name of this program, but. Uh... <laughs> yep. Well, you know, one more thing, uh, you know, if I had the ability right now to wave my magic wand, one of the things I would do immediately is probably pass a law that says you got to cap all methane that's just leaking out all over the world you know so i'm making you the benevolent environmental dictator with the power to implement laws and programs right here on this program and i want what would you do right away what, what where would you pinpoint that we should automatically just stop you know i've, I've been called worse uh first of all um <laughs> been a benevolent dictator by some of my detractors um but, uh, you know, I so sure methane, I mean, it there is, you know, it isn't just carbon dioxide. There's methane, there's ozone pollution, there's nitrous oxide, there are other greenhouse gases that are warming the planet. So, you know, th th we need a comprehensive uh, approach to tackling the problem. But the most important thing by far is to stop extracting and burning fossil fuels. And so if I were the sort of climate czar of the world, um, I would create a far greater disincentives for fossil fuel energy and far greater incentives for renewable energy so that we're putting our thumb down on the wrong, on the right side of the scale. Right now, we've got our thumb on the wrong side of the scale where here in the United States, we've got all sorts of subsidies that boost up the fossil fuel industry, the energy industry that's harming our environment. We need the opposite incentives. We need our thumb on the right end of the scale. And the way we're gonna do that is through having the right incentives because you know there are a lot of people out there who wanna do the right thing and will do it anyways and, and might even pay extra for you know um, climate friendly products and energy sources, et cetera. But we need everybody to make climate friendly decisions, whether or not they're thinking about those decisions. Uh, they're thinking about the climate when they make those decisions. And, and that only comes about through having the right economic incentives. And that only comes around uh, about through having the right policies. And that only comes around uh, about by having the right politicians. And that only comes about by us turning out and voting for climate forward politicians and voting out the politicians who serve as rubber stamps for polluters and so that would be what number I'm one to do yeah number one get out and vote the right people in that will take care of the problem and the, but so you know, to the listener out there right now what is there anything that you think that they could do other than the voting that they should sort of key in on to be yeah. to make the situation better absolutely voting is the bare minimum that that that, that, that can do because it's an expression, you know, our vote in some ways is our voice. We're expressing uh, our, our voice through our vote. But we have to more generally be using our voices in every way possible. And part of that is speaking out about climate, the climate crisis, um, making sure it's part of our conversation with friends and family and coworkers, et cetera, because the other side, polluters, have done everything they can to chill the discourse. They don't want us talking about it because when we talk about climate and when we prioritize climate, then politicians feel that pressure and they need to do something about it. So talking about climate, making sure it's part of our daily conversation, making sure that we energize others, that they recognize 
um, the you know the the fragile the fragility of this moment to to quote the book, um, and that they do their part. They use their voice as well as their vote um, to affect the changes that we need. Um, so that's you know. It, it, it's it, it's sort of a a positive infection. <laughs> we need to make sure, um, you know, we've been dealing with a very negative infection um, a pandemic in, in recent years, but we need this positive, the infectiousness of talking about the solutions, thinking about the solutions, and getting others to do the same. I guess today has been Michael E. Mann, paleoclimatologist and geophysicist and an author. His latest book is Our Fragile Moment. Michael, thank you so much for coming on Digging in the Dirt. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 